Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Industrial policy is making a comeback in political discourse as a key issue to be tackled in maintaining America's dominance internationally. Industry has always been a greater reflection of the trademarks of America, its efficiency, economic values, and its entrepreneurial spirit. However, in America's current understanding of industrial policy, among other issues, it leans towards the government seizing the role of the market for itself to control the economy and job opportunities and losses, unaccompanied by the natural flow of the market. In this episode, Dr. Samuel Gregg, Acton Institute's Director of Research, is joined by Dr. Veronique Deruji, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, to discuss the industrial soul of the American society. Innovation comes best from competition and creative freedom, not government intervention. The remaining question is this. Does a federal-centered industrial policy hinder American citizens and businesses' ability to adjust to the ebb and flow of a natural economy? You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Actonline on our website at actonorg slash Actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Hello, my name is Sam Gregg, and I am the Research Director at the Acton Institute, and it's my great pleasure today to introduce and have for a conversation Professor Veronique Duruji. Uh, she is at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, you can find more about her on uh, the Mercatus Center website. I like to describe uh, Professor Duruji as the warrior economist, the one who the people at the Export Import Bank really don't like. Uh, because she has uh, written and spoken extensively about lots of subjects, but one thing that she's focused a lot upon for a long time is the whole subject of industrial policy. And as we all know, industrial policy has made somewhat of a comeback in the last five, six, seven years, at least in the public sense. I mean, industrial policy has always been there. It's always been around. American economy is full of industrial policy. But now there are many people, not just on the left, but on the right, who are, have become firm advocates of the need for the United States to embrace industrial policy on a scale which is not just wide, but also openly embraced as well. So Professor Deruji is going to be talking to us about this today. And the first thing I'll, I'll, I'll pose um, this particular question. When you read the literature about industrial policy, the thing that most strikes you immediately is uh, the sheer number of definitions that apply to the issue of industrial policy. I've heard people say things like, well, defence policy is industrial policy or monetary policy is forms, falls under industrial policy. So could you give us um, a clear definition of what industrial policy is and what it isn't? It's a great question. It's the, I think it's the best place to start. However, I won't really have a really succinct uh, answer because it really actually depends, as you said, of where you sit on the political spectrum. So for instance, President Biden, when he talks about industrial policy, he talks about putting all his weight behind the production of green energy. When, uh, when the right talks about industrial policy, they talk about the need to revive manufacturing 
and and uh, and to to fence off you know the the decline that most of us don't worry about in terms of the number of people employed in manufacturing, but they somehow think this is this is a really big threat. Um, I guess I'll say that no matter where you stand. Um, Industrial policy is a way, it's a form of it's central planning. And so you can have it be really big, really, uh, re- really small. There's a form of central planning that effectively has for goal to override the functioning of the market and to override um, the, the, the distribution of resources, the allocation of resources, and the... Uh, no, no matter what consumers or producers want to serve the goal of a particular um, political goal. And uh, so very often when you have industrial policy, what you find as the reason evoked to put it in place is usually an external threat. So usually there's, so it's a sense that it's it's partly underwritten by the sense that planners, whether it's a technocrat or a government official or an quote-unquote expert, that they can outguess the market. Well, yeah. Well, so the government always thinks it can outguess the market. Right. But this is actually kind of a, um, a in theory, a plan that is put in place in a kind of more coordinated way in order to achieve, you know, this, this goal, which often has... Uh, for for objective to fight a threat. So, for instance, in the eighties, uh, it was uh, well in the fifties, sixties, <laughs> it was it was it was communist Russia, the, the communist regime. In the eighties, it was Japan. Now it's China, right? And so, and and you're also right. By the way, it's like I've also heard people say that education is industrial policy. Um, I've, I've heard all sorts of things, and. Really, I think the form that it takes the most is that it will focus on an industry or a particular sector and decide that somehow, for whatever reason, that particular sector needs to be propped up for the good of the nation. Okay, so that's so there we're getting a more concrete definition, right? Because it's partly about adjust, trying to adjust particular sectors of the economy. It's about the notion that the government has to take proactive action because of some threat or some perceived need. What would you say explains the rise of industrial policy as a as something that a lot of, for example, people on the right, conservatives, uh, uh, etc., are talking about as a live option? Why now? Why is it just China? Or are there other things going on which explain why there are so many people, not just on the left but on the right, who are saying things like, we need industrial policy, not just for small sectors, but on a wide scale. We need, and I've even seen some people say, we need to be more like China. So what do you think is driving the the new interest among some Americans, particularly younger Americans, when it comes to this topic? So first, I mean, I don't know if actually the, well, so let me just say this. I, I think the big broad reason is the threat of the perceived threat of China, right? And married, coupled with 
the um, the hardship in some very uh, localized area of the country. Those two things are like the kind of the broad reason why we're doing this, right? China being supposedly responsible for what's happening in places with high unemployment and 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 so the the Rust Belts, for example. Yeah, the, the Rust Belt, the Rust Belt. Um, so that's like the broad reason. As you and I, I think will agree, ultimately behind everything is the emergence of ideas. And for the longest time, I mean, not maybe the longest time, not long enough, uh, but the ideas that the markets and people um, were the best um, suited to um, deliver on the riches, uh, riches for people and the country, like it was, it was an idea that was just really widespread. For whatever reason, that's not my area of expertise, but whether it's because ideas, it's like, it's a cycle and they get old and, and if we lose, you know, if we lose sight of the, the, the Hayek challenge to always make capitalism and endeavor exciting to younger generation, maybe we felt at this. Maybe it is simply a natural cycle of things. Maybe it is the emergence of Donald Trump, uh, even though this is kind of industrial policies talked of uh, all over the world these days. Um, the ideas that the market delivers are good for everyone, or at least the very least that it is the best alternative of all the alternatives around is just lost ground, absolutely lost ground. Uh, and then, the, and then there's the political aspect. Obviously, I think in the U.S. certainly, the rise of Donald Trump has actually gotten a lot of people on the right thinking about, you know, where I mean, how, what do we do to win the next election? He's tapping onto something. You and I, we don't think about this because ultimately, we don't think in terms of political party and political win. We we think about right policies or wrong policies. Right. And but for a lot of people it's about is my team winning. And so the 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 Donald Trump definitely tapped into something, some anxiety at the elite level and at the and and at the, the more lower income level. And they're trying to kind of come up with ideas to fill that gap, to kind of take the place left by um, the idea that markets are are great or that, you know, like let, let innovators innovate, let the price system dictate like the, the, what's the best allocation for resources. And you see it, what's interesting is you not just have these emergence of economic, of industrial policy in the, as, as, as an economic concept that is kind of revived in the conversation that economists have, but you also have, you also have these, these ideas of, of, of the, the common good, right? That the government somehow is there to, to fulfill that this common good. You have these kind of idea of collectives that are just overriding the individual, the, the ideas of the individual. That's kind of like my, my best kind of explanation. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of uh, economic, there's a lot of political opportunism that's taking place for sure. And there's just a profound, profound misunderstanding of economics. Well, let's talk about that because I think you mentioned the role of ideas and at Acton and at Mercatus and 
a lot of the, the circles we move in, we talk about ideas all the time. We don't really talk about Democrats, Republicans. We don't think that way. But obviously a lot of people do. But the ideas issue, I, I want to narrow in a little bit on that. Industrial policy is obviously based upon certain ideas about the economy, certain ideas about politics, certain ideas about the role of government. I'd like you to explain to our listeners, what is the essential flaw with industrial policy? I mean, there's there's lots that we could probably talk about more, but what would you describe as the number one flaw with industrial policy that makes it a less than optimal set of propositions for the United States to embrace? So the problem with industrial policy, as I see it, is a problem that is shared with the most government intervention. And that is that the incentives within which this plan for industrial policy is going to be designed is very likely going to fail, honestly, and to be less an idea because it's going to be driven first by people who are not spending their own money, by people who um, are are like less than adequate knowledge to actually allocate uh, resources effectively. So the knowledge problem is part of what you're talking about. There's definitely a knowledge problem and there's a special interest problem. Mm -hmm. A lot of the decisions that take place within government uh, are driven by 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 um, special interest. So the knowledge problem is is obvious that the one of the reasons why the market is works so well, and by the market is really what we're talking about is like we're not talking we're talking about the institutions of the market. We're not talking about it's not a concrete thing that you can, but it, and it's and it's made of millions and millions and millions and millions of interactions between people. Um, the reason why that works well is because there's so much information. They're like, there's so, so, so much information that is collected and aggregated almost as it happens through the price system. And there is like really nothing that can replicate the, the information that is carried about resources, con- consumer demands, um, supplies, all of that stuff as the price system can. So industrial people who are in implementing the industrial policy, whatever it is, part of their challenge is that they can't possibly know everything they would need to know to be able to come up with a policy that's going to deliver a better outcome yes. than the information conveyed by free prices made up of people's subjective consumer choices, entrepreneurs deciding what they want to do with the resources they have. So this this sort of points back to what Hayek called the knowledge problem, right? And, and um, I mean, I, I recommend reading uh, reading a book that is totally under, under read. I mean, it, it needs to, I've been like, since I read it, I'm embarrassed to say four or three years ago uh, by um, uh, Economic Nationalism, What is Left by uh, Don Lavoie. Mm-hmm. Um, I reread that recently as well. It's very, very good. It's aged remarkably well, mm-hmm. actually. And, um, you know, th- th- this knowledge problem is at the core of a lot of the problem with the government intervention and in pretty much everything. And I, I want to actually kind of, 
like say something that's been like is nags me all the time. It'd be one thing, right? If the government said, you know what, we have goals, and our goals is we're going to be favoring this particular group and the hell with the consequences. It's going to create distortion. We're like, but that's not what they're saying, right? Their claim is that somehow they can beat the market. That's how the knowledge problem can come in, right? It's because they make this claim that somehow they can allocate resources in a way that is better than the market does. And we know that if what we're after is economic efficiencies, that is just not possible. Unless you can point that they are like market failures all over the place, and often market failures like industrial policies in the name of the beholder. But the unless you can you can prove that, right? And you can prove that you have a way to override all these problems and you have a better way, which we have extensive literature that the government just can't. And it can't because of the knowledge problem. It can't because of the, the, the special interest group. It, you have a problem. So this is why actually what's interesting right now is this shift from the conservative side towards a common good, right? When you listen to people like Oren Cass, Marco Rubio, they're talking about the fact that they don't like what they see, right? They're not so much making an efficiency problem and the efficiency thing. They're just saying, it's just not right. You know, I mean, like, sure, the market tends to uh, allocate money eff effectively and that leads to a lot of labor savings innovation, but that means fewer jobs. That's not actually true, but it, it, it means, on paper, it could look as if it's true. It looks fewer jobs, right? And then sure, if you look at just manufacturing employment, that is true. There's way fewer employment. But isn't it true that something like four out of five manufacturing jobs that have quote unquote disappeared, it's primarily because of technological innovation. Well, yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. Labor-saving innovation, right? You you innovate, you 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 autom you automate. And so they're only looking at the number of the, the number of people incline 80% of the job loss or 88% of the job loss is because of technology uh, over time. And it, and so they're saying, oh, look, the number of people employed in manufacturing is just is declining. And they're saying, and that is true. There is no doubt about this. But when you just look at this and don't look at anything else, like for instance, What's happened to all these other people? Well, right. <laughs> or what have happened to every single one of these jobs in manufacturing? Well, actually, manufacturing jobs now are not low skills like they used to be. They're they're fairly high skills. There's a reason why everyone loves manufacturing is because it's fairly well paid. Why is it well paid? Well, it's well paid because the workers have high productivity. Why is it? Because of innovation, right? But also, what happened to the workers who've actually been displaced? They're not standing in the unemployment line. Right. That's not that's not where they are. They've moved on to other sectors of the economy, which presumably you want them to do. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, they've actually gotten uh, arguably better, less dangerous job. In fact, even like the biggest critic of, of the China shock is like admit it, right? It's like it's like those low-skilled people, it's they disappeared from the low-skill 
low-income ranks to move up to the middle class. And we've seen it all the time. We don't sit around lamenting the, 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 the people who used to work at Blockbuster when Netflix basically created this incredible competition and, and these stores disappeared, right? They've gone, to, or like, what about tra- travel agent? This is creative destruction. It's not fun when you get fired, but ultimately on net, it's actually this notion that people then just, their only option is to be stuck in, in unemployment line it is not true. And so they're looking, they're looking at all of this and they're saying, oh, look, they, the jobs are decreasing and we see there's this pocket of workers who are not, who, are not, who don't have jobs, right? And often, uh, often they're in towns that used to be heavily manufacturing towns and things like this. And, and it doesn't really matter that these, all these people who are employed in manufacturing have actually really higher paid job and all this. There's a value to working, which we will agree, all, all of us agree. There's a value to working and hence uh, it's worth the distortion that it creates to put these people back at work, right? And they think that the way to make it go back at work is to create artificial, artificially um, a, a surge in the demand for 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 manufacturing and the problem with all of this it's making so many economic mistakes along the way and the way they think about this it's also a political dimension to this though as well right so let's let's just talk a little bit about that because one of the things when i've critiqued industrial policy people i always raise the question of how it clearly facilitates cronyism you mentioned political actors right So can you say something about this connection between industrial policy and the phenomena of what we often call cronyism or crony capitalism? Yeah. So, again, I just don't want to be, you know, like when you have a one factor explanation for everything, uh, it kind of diminishes the value of your argument. That said, I do think that a big, big part of the functioning of government and the way decisions are made by politicians is driven by special interest politics. Um, one of the things that you and I know and we've talked about is the fact that the way um, what works is, is you have what we call concentrated benefits of a government intervention and diffuse costs. So the people who are going to go and lobby politicians to take some measures to protect them, either to protect their industry or to give them more subsidies, or, uh, protect them against competition and all of this, right? They have a strong incentive, and if they if, if they if they get if they get the, the government granted privilege, it, the benefits is going to be concentrated on them, and the cost is like diffused to to all sorts of people, and that's pretty much all. I mean, it explains most of the decisions that are made. And so now take it for, like, trans, translate this into industrial policy. Like, one of the big tools of industrial policy historically, and we've seen it in the last four years, is trade protectionism, right? How does this start? We've seen it with President Trump. How does it start? The way it starts is, like, you have these politicians who is, like, like, complaining like he perceives that these unfair um, trade trade that's happening in the U.S. And at the same time, he has people in different industries still, for instance, coming to tell him, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We suffer. We suffer. We suffer from that competition. And you know what would be so, so great would be to actually 
put tariffs on foreign imports, especially those from China, then we could really operate at a potential if we're not threatened by, by, the, um, by the competition. It's interesting, isn't it, that you never hear industries say, oh, now we're, we're settled, now you can take away the tariffs. Oh, and especially steel is kind of really interesting because I started looking at the steel issue when, like, when I think when most of the countries started looking at steel issues. I mean, until now, trade was like a really kind of small, uh, specialized area where you had a few people working on this. And I was shocked. I was like, I was shocked to see that um, it was over 70% of the uh, domestic consumption of steel is done with U.S. steel. Of course. So they have 70% of the market and they're whining about the competition from China, right? But so you have Donald Trump and you have, uh, and you have uh, all these politicians on the Hill who are hearing, so yeah, yeah, we suffer from competition. We suffer from competition. We suffer from competition. Boom, tariffs. In the name of industrial policy, protecting American steel, protecting our, our interest against, against the Chinese, bam. Those who don't hear as much are actually the American producers that are consumer. There are consumers of both US steels, but also foreign steel. Right, because there's so many of them. There are millions more, more of them than they are of big steel producers. Right, it's like this, the big steel head of big steel. You can put them all around a table. And in fact, we saw, we witnessed it on TV. Like we witnessed cronyism done, where it was the president with with all these these steel uh, steel CEOs. And, and, and that is the problem is like ultimately all these plans, they're driven by this. And, and the result is, is cronyism, government granted privilege. And, and industrial policy is, 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 is really, is just the same. You know, whenever I raise this subject of cronyism and industrial policy, you know what the response I normally get from people on the other side is? Oh. Nothing. They, they basically refuse, because they, they know. They know this is the reality, but they refuse to acknowledge it. And, and think about it this way. Even when the argument is, okay, let's look at the Rust Belt. Let's look at these workers who've been displaced. And by the way, it is true. There is something that's happening, and, and that is that it used to be the case that when you had an economic shock triggered by, you know, an economic recession or like competitions, uh, sudden competition from other countries, blah, 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 right? You'd have areas, pocket of, of the nation where unemployment would go up dramatically. But as people would move out of the region and people would also look and search for new jobs, get out of that industry, unemployment would go down. That has been the pattern forever and ever and ever in America and, and around the world. It's not happening in some pockets of the country recently, in the last 30 years, it's not happening. Why is that? You have an economic shock, let's say China competition, and you have a shock and these workers, they actually don't leave the region and they stay unemployed. And so that's, it's a real thing that is happening, right? It's a real thing that's happening. So you're saying that before Americans would 
just get up and move somewhere else. Yes. And in my opinion, it's not like from everything I've studied, this is not a trade competition issue. This is an adjustment issue. So you mean things like adjustment programs that are implemented by as part of these trade agreements? Oh, uh, yeah. It's also like the difficulty to move now to more profitable areas, right? Because of zoning laws and, right. and things where all your, and, and, but a lot of government programs, disability insurance is a real big innovator of work. In fact, the uh, work from the Joint Economic Committee and Scott Winship in particular uh, has shown that a vast majority of people who have dropped and men in particular who've dropped from the labor force, they're on disability. It doesn't necessarily mean that all of them are faking, but it means that if you have any form of disability, even the ones that could actually allow you to work, they decide to drop out because of disability insurance. So effectively, a lot of these programs and things like disability insurance are disincentivizing people from making adjustments. When you look at people, by the way, who've dropped out of the labor force based on that resource, it was fascinating to me to look at it. If I remember correctly, they were only 14% of the 100% that had dropped out of the labor force that were doing it because they couldn't find jobs. So it wasn't the inability to find jobs. There were other reasons. There were people retiring, just deciding to retire early. There were people deciding to stay home for their families. There were people on disability. There were people uh, deciding to go get an education. These were all the reasons that caused, like it was something like 85% or something like this. Like it was enormous, right? It was only 14%, if I remember, that were actually saying, no, we would like to have a job, but we couldn't find a job. Hence, we dropped out of the labor force. So that's important. The other thing I wanted to actually say, because um, for all the talk about the China responsible for the uh, the the air, what's happening in all of these areas? There's no denying that they caused a shock, right? But when you actually look at the at the at the decline in employment and manufacturing in the last fifty years or even like what thirty years, right? It started a long time ago, even before China came into the WTO. The thing is, you cannot even pinpoint on that curve if you didn't have dates mm-hmm. you couldn't say when is when did china get accepted in the wto when did this china shock happen mm-hmm. it is important to understand that the question is not that there was a china shock there was a china shock the problem is is your economy adjusting mm-hmm. we have an adjustment problem in this country and the problem is not is brought on in my opinion by way too much government intervention that creates a ton of disability, this incentive to work. Well, here's, since you mentioned China, that's come up several times. One of the things industrial policy advocates is they'll say, yes, but look at how industrial policy was applied in countries like Korea or Southeast Asian countries. Uh, I don't know if you've studied any of that, but I mean, I have, I've looked at some of it and I found a lot of that <laughs> is basically a bogus argument. But what's your sense of when you hear people say that, when you hear people say, well, you know, it worked in these other countries, we should be trying it here. What's your, your, your response to that argument? So I will tell you, I, I will base my response on, on two main reports. I've actually looked at this. So, um, 
the WHO and the OECD uh, a while back looked at this question, and what they were what they were finding is that to the extent that these kind of coordinated government intervention and targeted intervention, in particular, in trying to um, prop up exports and 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 restrict import, to the extent that they work, they actually were only building on a economic growth trend that was already happening. So basically, it had already, the economic development had already started to happen. It wasn't initiated by the industrial policy. And of course, right, the, the always the question that economists should be asking is, is as compared to what, right? What's the pattern in these countries without it? And arguably, the answer is actually they would have done, they would have done probably fine, right? The other, I recommend there's a book that came out, I think it was two years ago by Alvin Panagaria. He's kind of a renowned trade economist. And he wrote an entire book, I can't remember the name of it, and where he looks systematically at each of these nations. And he makes a very convincing case that all these export propping policies are just kind of, are just not, and mix it with with data and, and and economic analysis. Like it's just not, it's just not being as productive as you can as, as you think. And and the re, the real problem again is is what's the alternative, right? Like no one denies that governments can enhance one sector of the economy in the short run. The question is at what cost. And at, at what costs often meaning at, at the expense of, of other industries, because you can pinpoint to one or two of these. What about all the others that have been tried, even in these countries, and have failed? And the more serious resurgence of industrial policy in the U.S., the argument that is made is that it wouldn't be central planning; it'd be through investment in R&D research either in the form of R&D tax credit or in the form of funding for R&D, right? And the the underpinning idea of this is like R&D, look, you can point out, you know, you say the internet, the GPS, the blah, 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 the da, 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 blah, blah, that's all funded with government. Look, it works. It works well, right? What's failing in these, in all of these things is like actually, while there's there's some truth to the fact that behind the innovation is there was some seed money, right? First, we don't know what whether that would have happened or not. But it's also these things became the productive and effective things that we use and love today only when the private sector took it on for commercialization reason. And that's the story of I've literally every of the example that they that they give, right? It's like you leave it in the hands of the of the of the defense department, it doesn't give us the internet. Right. It doesn't give us the GPS, same thing, right? What also that story doesn't tell you is the hundreds of billions of dollars that have been spent and they have actually led to dead end, uh, wasteful spending, corrupt project. And, and, and all that stuff, right? And so it's very easy to kind of say, look, this and this and this and this. Okay, you, I'm willing to grant you this as long as you grant me 
that this only became it when you turn it over to the private sector. And as if you, if you grant me that for every quote unquote success you point to, there's thousands of costly failings. Yeah. So right now I'm actually looking very seriously. I mean, trying to, because like there's this thing that people repeat as if it's a religion, you know, R&D spending, R&D spending really, um, it, it's productive. Their spillover effect, it will always, that's the best way to create economic growth, right? And the, the, the truth of the matter is like, there just hasn't been like a comprehensive work that's been done to actually say, okay, let's take it all and look at what that multiplier really is. Isn't part of the thing that, that when we think about these things and we talk about spillover effects, because as you're right, we hear that all the time, but you don't embark on a project for spillover effects. You don't have defense policy in order to have um, spillover effects. You have defense policy because you have to defend the country. That's why you do it. Exactly. Right? So the notion that you spillover effects are a reason to do something strikes me as a, as a serious mis- misunderstanding of what the purpose of, say, defense is. I, you're totally right. This is not why you start doing it. I think there's just a lot of things that people repeat. Mm-hmm. Like It's like we don't produce anything in this country anymore. I actually heard one person say to me, well, factories are closing down all over America. And I said, well, really? Uh, have you been to the South lately? No, I mean, <laughs> it's just really kind of odd. Like you look at industrial capacity, it's, at a, it's super high. You look at... Uh, R&D funding, super high in the private sector, by the way. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. the, that's also the, there's this always this kind of like, oh, you know, R&D funding in the U.S. is is like, it's, it's declining. First, as a share of GDP, which I always find it like kind of an odd thing. And always they're, they're not looking at the private sector R&D spending. Right. They're looking at the government, right? And then the fact that there's, is very clearly, there is a crowding out effect that is taking place, meaning that as the government stepped uh, back on its investment in R&D, the private sector more than uh, filled in. Um, and, you, and you can see it by the divergence of the, the pattern, the, 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 the lines, the, the trend lines. And so there's just kind of a, there's just a lot of confusion and there's just a lot of uh, wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. The the thing that I find is more, most dangerous today in the resurgence of industrial policy in the U.S. is not so much what's happening on the left. The left is like, you know, Biden's like, we're going to use industrial policy to turn everything green. (laughs) Good luck with that. <laughs> you know, but I mean, this is the kind of things we've been saying all the time. You know, like, oh, they, the, the left is saying, repeating, is saying this. What worries me is the right. What's happening on the right is doing it in the name of, you know, the 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 the, the good, the good of the, the common good and nationalism, mm. right? And and that to me is very disconcerting. First, I'm an economist, so I've kind of this is not exactly kind of like like an area where I I'm, I have a very strong uh, comparative advantage to to fight back against this. Um, but but there is a rhetoric that is um, that is just really kind of disconcerting. You mean things like okay, if you engage with trade with foreign foreign companies, you're somehow not really patriotic enough 
Yes. Or if you don't, if you prefer to buy a Japanese car rather than an American car, then somehow you're not really as, Amer- as American as yes. you should be. But it's, I think it kind of goes, it's very kind of unclear exactly what it, what they mean at the individual level, right? Mm. It is more this notion, it's really um, this notion of them versus us. Is it, There's a confrontational aspect to this that I find very disheartening. Whereas, of course, in markets, it's all about mutually beneficial exchange. Yeah, and, and so I really, um, that concerns me, you know, like the others are the enemy. It, everything is talked in really adversarial and, and even kind of war-type conflict uh, areas. And, and, and now, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of things that are just, you know, very scary. Right. China is not a nice country. The Chinese no. regime are not nice people. No. They're communists. They're doing terrible things to their own people. They're, pus- they're pursuing policies around the world that are deeply destructive. Yeah. But as I often say to people, that's not a reason for us to embark upon dumb policies. No, yeah. And and the, the thing that's also unsettling for, for, for us, I assume for you and me, is this argument that the best way to defeat China because China is so horrible and so bad, is to become like China. Right. <laughs> and you're saying this, it's like, look, industrial policy worked there. And you're like, really? Has it? Right. You know, and there's this whole mystique. And, and as such, you know, because we're afraid of big national government, authoritarian government, we need to be a national... A big national authoritarian government. Authoritarian government. government. <laughs> and I'm just like, you've lost me. Like... You know, and, and then that they are national security concerned with China. Sure, I'm, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll buy it. That that their national security sometimes argument that requires that uh, to override the efficiency of the market and private decision. Sure, I could even go for that. I absolutely could go for that. And. I don't think anyone, any free market people would 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 object. I mean, even Adam Smith. Right. Defense Trump's opulence. Yeah. But what you have to be clear about what that means. And 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 unfortunately, the last four years, uh, President Trump has actually waived the national security argument for things that had nothing to do with national security. Right. Well, we're almost out of time, Professor Derushi. So I'd like to just close with um asking you one question. And uh, let's see if we can make this a, a pretty concise one because I think our inter- listeners will be interested in this. What's the most effective thing that ordinary people can do if they want to push back against industrial policy? Because one of the things about industrial policy, as you know, is that the reason it gets tends to get up, it tends to be implemented, is because there's concentrated interest groups. And those who are who pay the cost of that are diffuse, right? They're called consumers. (laughs) So what's the most effective thing that you think people can do in terms of pushing back against this move to industrial policy that, as you say, has always been there on the left. They just use it for different things, but now is manifesting itself on the right. What's the most effective thing that they can do? Read Dan Lavoie, uh, National Economic Planning, What is Left. But if you're not up for reading a book, Read everything in the last four years by Adam Thier 
at the Mercatus Center. And especially, you know, when I read in the last four years, the things that he has put on the uh, Discourse magazine, which is which is uh, uh, a, a magazine by Mercatus, it's online, uh, by Adam by Adam Thier at the Mercatus Center. He has actually addressed a lot of these issues. And the other thing is like read all of the stuff written really literally the last four years by uh, Scott Lincecombe at Cato. And the reason why I'm pinpointing those, those two guys is they do something that a lot of us, you and I, and, and many others fail to do, which is they will go and dig in a particular issue. So for instance, Scott has looked at the national security argument used for industrial policy. He has a paper on this. It is very under, easy to read. And, and he gives you so many arguments. He has done deep dive on the issue of, do we need an industrial policy for semiconductor? By the way, which was an issue in the 80s too, right? That's one of the super big failed policy of the 80s. Uh, why they would be able to do it now, whatever. And, and you will see that the semiconductors are fine to the extent that they're not, it's their own doing. And uh, and and it's also uh, Trump's in, in the uh, Trump t trade protectionism. So he's done looked at actually this very concrete issue, and it just and it will open your mind. Scott Lindsay Combs has actually looked at uh, people who say, "Look, industrial policy looks bec works because of our our look the vaccine delivery." And Scott's like, "I don't." think so, because I mean, if really this is industrial policy, you're going to have to kind of explain how Pfizer did it all outside of um, parish uh, operation uh, warp speed, right? Totally. They were outside of it and they got no money from, from the federal government. They did it all on its own. And, uh, and to some extent, the federal government actually hindered the ability of Pfizer to deliver uh, va uh, vaccines faster. So he 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 dives into all of this, and 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 Adam does the same thing. Was like, do we really, really, do we want an industrial policy for tech based on the European model? And no, let me tell you why. Uh, how about what about all those China successes? Mm -hmm. And and I, so very concrete things. You and I often I feel like. We talk too much at the theater, you know, at that level, which is it's well and fine. But ultimately, the battle is 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 fought with look the cell phone or whatever. Look the GPS. That was all the government. We need to do this times three thousand, and and that that's the kind. And when you understand that what they're saying about this particular industry is true everywhere, I think you will have better ammunition to fight all this. Well, thanks, Professor Darugi. I should mention that it's always worth to read your writings on, the, on these materials, which are amply available at uh, the Mercatus Center. And to read some of your congressional testimony, I think is always very interesting in terms of discussing what industrial policy is, what it isn't, where it's going, how it's emerged, and uh, some of the very clear problems of it and also some of the political dimensions that are dividing many Americans about this, this subject, and I suspect you're going to continue for, to do so for a while. So thank you very much for being with us, and thank you for, uh, to our listeners for being with us today as well. Thank you for having me.
As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Zhajan.